Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast features a panel discussion on 80 Years of Terror, The Weird Menace Pulps. Participating are Ed Hulls, editor of Blood and Thunder magazine, longtime pulp collector Walker Martin, and Dr. Garen Roberts. The talk was recorded on Friday, August 8, 2014, at Pulp Fest 2014 in Columbus, Ohio. Here is Ed. Uh, in the interests of keeping up this evening's lightning pace <laughs> and also getting back on schedule, we're going to cut this down to a fast-moving 30 minutes so that we can get back on schedule and we'll follow this with the panel for uh, Astounding uh, and follow that with Buck Rogers. And hopefully there will still be some of you awake for all this uh, going on. So uh, we decided to make our sub-theme. We were celebrating uh, science fiction's Diamond Jubilee for the main theme. For the sub-theme for the convention, we chose 80 Years of Terror. This is the 80th anniversary of the launching of Terror Tales, which was the second of uh, a handful of magazines started by popular publications uh, in a genre that became known as Weird Menace. I'm not actually sure that that term was used very much while the magazines were being published, but it's certainly the genre that we know um, from our collecting and our, uh, you know, the reprints that we buy and whatnot. It really got underway. There had been stories, elements of Weird Menace um, in earlier pulps, but the, the subgenres, as we, I guess we could call it, it really kind of coalesced in 1933 when Popular Publications President Harry Steger went to Paris. Now, Steger had a lot of colorful stories for how he came up with ideas for his magazines. I'm going to assume that this one is true, but I'll warn you it may or may not be true. Supposedly, he went to, uh, while in Paris, they went to the Grand Guignol Theater, where he got the idea, he saw these gruesome reenactments that they do as part of the acts there, you know, uh, women being tortured and murdered in violent ways and hideous human fiends skulking across the stages and whatnot. So he thought, presumably, that this was an idea for a pulp magazine. He came back home and he talked to his editorial director, Rogers Terrell, and said, you know, maybe this is something we're going to do. Well, what they did was they retooled an existing magazine, which had been called Dime Mystery Book, which was a magazine they started in 1932 that printed some fairly mediocre book-length novels, some of which were straight whodunits, some of which were kind of Sachs-Romer-type things, some of which uh, had horror elements. And what they did was in the fall of 1933, they got Norville Page, who was just about to go onto the Spider magazine under the name Grant Stockbridge, they got Norval Page to do a story that he called Dance of the Skeletons. And the formula that they came up with was this. Uh, there would be crimes or depredations of some kind that seemingly were supernatural, that had some unexplainable element, but at the end of the story, it would turn out to be rational, logical, and it would be reasonably explained. So Page, in doing a story, he, um, he came up with an idea based on something that he'd read, maybe in National Geographic or a magazine like that. He had read an article that said that the piranha in South America could strip the flesh off a 
I forget if it was they talked about a pig or a calf or something like that, that they could strip the flesh off in seconds and, and leave nothing but bones behind. So with this in mind, Page wrote a story called Dance of the Skeletons. So the premise of this story, that various prominent people were being murdered and they're, you know, they couldn't find anything left of them but skeletons. So it turned out that even though there was a lot of hinting around that this was being accomplished by some supernatural means, at the end they found out that the murderer was dipping the, the, the corpses in, in uh, uh, pools of piranha so that there would be no evidence that could be traced back, no fingerprints, no identification of the corpse or whatever. Okay, this became the basic formula. So they renamed Dime Mystery Book to, to Dime Mystery, and after a few months of this, they decided in 1934 to launch a magazine devoted entirely to this type of story. That became known as Terror Tales. Now, when Rogers Terrell announced the formation of these magazines, he um, put an article in the Writer's uh, Magazines, Writer's Digest, things that went both to aspiring writers and to members of the publishing trade. And um, he eventually came up with a description um, of the different terms, and there was horror and terror. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit now, but, but his definition of horror was, horror is something that you might feel if you were looking down a dark alley and you saw a zombie chasing a young woman. That would be horrifying, that would be horror. Terror is what you would feel if you looked down that alley and the zombie was coming at you. So with this in mind, they approached some of their regular writers and said, look, this is the formula we've come up with. There are going to be these various horror events, uh, horrific means of murder, but however weird they seem to be, there's got to be a logical explanation for them in the end. Okay, so they did this with Terror Tales, um, which was a successful magazine. Now, in an earlier presentation this evening, I discussed the fact that during the Depression years, uh, a lot of the pulps got wilder and wilder because the impulse to create escapist entertainment became more and more pronounced. So Weird Menace was a genre that lent itself to the craziest kind of ideas, but it was something that, that was, it was, it demanded a certain sort of intellectual vigor that a lot of writers didn't want to bother with for a penny a word. Um, but some did and some did very well. And as a result, Terror Tales was for at least a, a few years a very uh, a top-selling magazine. It was followed in 1935 by horror stories. And initially, Terrell wanted to distinguish the stories, differentiate the stories in these magazines by that definition I just gave you. Terror, you know, a lot of the terror stories were supposed to be first-person stories of somebody experiencing terror. Horror was supposed to be something that would have a more visceral impact told from the point of view of somebody observing these kind of horrific uh, events. That distinction got lost pretty early on, and basically, as writers started submitting the tales, it just became a question of, I need to fill 13 pages in this issue, what do I have in the hopper? So whether or not it was originally intended for horror or terror kind of got lost. Dime Mystery eventually drifted out. They, they created a subset of a subset called Defective Detectives. I think that was a name that was um, uh, coined by Robert Jones who wrote a great book on this topic called The Shutter Pulps, of which I, I know there are several copies in the dealer's room. And if you're interested in this topic, you have to get that book. Um, so Popular pioneered this, this genre. It was picked up. The Thrilling Group had a title that they called Thrilling Mystery. But 
it was kind of tame. Uh, the popular books went a little wilder, and we'll discuss how wilder they went later on. But to begin with, I'll throw a question to Garen. Um, popular, of course, always preferred using reliable writers. I mean, they did solicit new fiction from new writers, but they had a, a stable of standbys that they relied on who had proven themselves adaptable to various genres. And one of them, of course, was the very prolific Frederick C. Davis, who was working for them on a contract basis, uh, supplying the Operator 5 hero pulp novels on a monthly basis for the first 16, 17 issues. Garen has done a lot of research on Frederick C. Davis. So maybe you can give us a hint of um, how it was that he found himself so readily able to adapt to this kind of story and, and uh, how he enjoyed this kind of work. Well, uh, thanks, Ed. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. Ed said a lot of wonderful things so far, uh, accounting for people like uh, Norville Page and uh, some other authors who are part of the stables of popular and other publications. Uh, Fred Davis was, of course, a, a very talented man. And when I think about him, we think about all kinds of things. We think about Ron Goulart's early introduction or interview with him in The Adventurous Decade, which was done several decades ago. Um, we think a little bit about what his granddaughter, Karen, who we, who's not here just yet. She may come tomorrow, she may not. We, we talked to her today. Um, has told us about her grandfather and his writing schedule, that he was... Uh, uh, a very kind, wonderful man, but he was very, very dedicated to his craft. And in the case of Davis, he would sequester himself and type for hours on end. Now, one of the things about Davis that I think probably lent him to be a good Weird Menace writer was is that he was very good at understanding the concept of formula and story patterns. And while in many ways, whether he was writing air stories, western stories, moon man stories, uh, other kinds of popular detective types of stories, he seemed to have a sense of the formulas that he was supposed to write about. And many of those formulas transcended the genres of air and western and so on and so forth. Um, so I think he was a particularly a, a good uh, scholar of the pulps. Uh, he never really took them as anything much more, at least in his time, as something that made money for him. Um, he, was a, he was a consummate pulpster. He was very talented, and of course his work appeared in, as we know, from Matt Mooring's uh, reprints, and Ed's done some beautiful introductions of, of Dime Detective reprints from Altus Press. His work appeared in a whole range of things, and he was indeed talented, but I think of, of Davis as a formula writer in many ways, in a good way. Um, that does not, that's, that's not an aesthetic that's a, a negative thing. Formula writing is not necessarily bad. There's an art involved in it. Um, and of course, what was his most famous Weird Menace title? Do you remember? One of the great titles. The Mole Men Want Your Eyes. Which would only be equaled years later by Harlan Ellison's I have no mouth and I must scream. What what great titles. I don't know if that helped Ed at all, but 
but but Fred Davis, wonderful talent. Well, let's go this. Do you do you prefer his weird menace writings to some of his others? How how do you think that he he stands up as? Uh... Oh, I like him very very much all the way across all of it. Um, I got a charge out of the one Argosy magazine, and I have a copy of it. It's a beautiful issue where he got uh, head billing over Edgar Rice Burroughs underneath. And uh, when he showed it to his son, uh, Rick, Rick says, wow, he, he topped Edgar Rice Burroughs, and he literally had on the cover of that Argosy. Um, something else to remember about Davis, he, one of his big markets was, he's very prolific, was 10 Detective Aces by A.A. Uh, a. and Rose Wynn. And um, a lot of the stories during the Weird Menace period in Detective, 10 Detective right. Aces had Weird Menace elements to them. And uh, not only things like the Moon Man, and then later his, uh, he had another series after that. But then you think about Paul Chadwick and all the other authors, Wade Hammond, and yeah. I, I, I one of the, the very first issue of Ten Detectives I ever bought shortly after I started collecting pulps. I remember the detective um, was wondering about the deaths of a number of people at a at a party at a wealthy man's estate. And it turned out that the murderer had put an octopus in the swimming pool. <laughs> so when they went out skinny dipping at midnight, it was, it was a bad scene. That was the kind of thing that, that, that you could get away with weird, weird menace. Before I throw it to Walker, I want to add a little more information to the mix so that'll set up the question I'm going to ask him. Uh, as you might imagine, even guys as talented as Fred Davis and the other popular authors, including, by the way, Hugh B. Cave, who was a good friend of our, ours, uh, who came to many of the old pulp cons and one or two of the Windy City conventions. He was another one of these consummate professionals who could work in almost any genre, and when he, he was savvy enough to, to suss out which trends were catching on, and he would get involved. So he got involved early in, in Weird Menace, and he was another guy who, who did some excellent, really atmospheric, uh, very effective tales within the confines of this formula, which became, after a few years, rather limiting. So uh, around 1937, going into 1938, Popular decided to up the ante a little bit, and they introduced another element of these Grand Guignol tales, uh, presentations that Harry Steger had seen in Paris. The, the stories became more focused on the torture uh, of women and the, the hint of, more than a hint of sexual menace. Now, women never actually got raped. They, it never actually got too far. It never actually, there were certain things that you couldn't do because after all, uh, if the post office found out about it, your second class mailing privileges were down the drain. However, there was a lot that they hinted at and even though overt uh, explicit sexual activity was forbidden, Torture, apparently, was not as objectionable. <laughs> so it used to be that the early covers of the Weird Menace magazines would be like nighttime scenes of a fully clothed, an attractive but fully clothed woman being chased by ghouls or something like that. Later on, the women became, they lost more of their clothes. As it, well, you can always tell the chronology of a Weird Menace thing by how many clothes the woman is wearing. First, in the early years, she's fully clothed. Then she's got tears in her dress. Then she's in her underwear, and finally she's naked with an arm thrown up and it, you know, <clears throat> conceals the naughty bits. <laughs> so at any rate, by 1938, the, the popular publications, Weird Menace titles were pretty hot. 
and the, uh, it's what they call the sex and sadism phase of this particular subgenre. Now, again, it's important to note that as, as a, a, a genre that developed very quickly, it flamed out rather quickly, too. So uh, Terror Tales started in 1934. By 1941, it was all done. And even for a year or so before it finished up, with I think a total run of 53 or 54 issues, uh, in the last two years or so, it had gotten kind of tame because at some point they just said, you know, these stories are getting too hot. The censors, somebody's going to come after us. We're going to get banned. Uh, we can't afford this. So they toned them down a little. Uh, I'll add parenthetically that uh, Martin Goodman of Red Circle Publications, a company that became Marvel, he did his own weird menace imitations, mystery tales and uncanny tales, and those read like a catalog of perversions. I mean, that was like, it, it, picking it up was like uh, getting a new edition of Kraft Ebbing, you know? So you had necrophilia, you had masochism, you had all kinds of things. They really pushed the envelope. Popular didn't go quite that far, but they were pretty explicit, and it also showed in the cover art. So we'll move forward now to Walker Martin, who in addition to being a prolific collector, happens to be one of the few guys in this room, possibly in the weekend altogether, who was at the first PulpCon. So what I want to throw to you is, as a collector who goes back to the 60s, long after these magazines were gone, describe for us First of all, if they were in demand by collectors in the early pulp cons, and talk about some of the old pulp fans, what their opinions of these stories were, and your own reflections on the, how, what you felt when you first encountered these things, and uh, some of the artwork and things, the things that impressed you about them. Well, yeah, in the, in the early years of, of uh, pulp con in the 1970s, these magazines were uh, highly collectible. In fact, uh, in 68, when I got out of the Army, I was thinking of just collecting black masks and weird tales. But somehow I discovered the, the word menace pulps by reading Bronze Shadows and reading uh, uh, Robert Jones's uh, uh, article in Bronze Shadows. So I started thinking I'd like to get some of the terror tales, the horror stories. And I did. A collector's bookstore had uh, quite a few of them in fine condition for $15 each which was an outrageous price in 1969 because most pulps back then, 69, was selling for like a buck each. So I sent off my, uh, all the money I had, 800 bucks, to collector's bookstore, and he sent me a, a gigantic box of horror and terror, about 50 issues, I guess. They were delivered special delivery. <laughs> Honestly, God, it must have been on a Sunday. I couldn't believe the post office actually <laughs> delivered special delivery on a Sunday, but. It, that's my memory of it. And for the next six months, I didn't work. I was just out of the <laughs> army. You know, my mother was worried because I was just hanging around the house. But this time I'm in my late 20s. You know, I'm not, I'm not thinking of starting a family or a career or anything. I'm just reading these weird menace magazines. <laughs> well, the thing about the weird menace magazines, all the villains are like, Elderly, demented Cretans. <laughs> yeah. And you're describing the dealer's room on any given yeah. Saturday. Afternoon. That's that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, <laughs> the early years of PulpCon, there was a lot of young guys. I was only 30 in 1972 when I went to my first PulpCon, and uh, a lot of the guys that I knew then were young too. Bob Weinberg was 25 years old. You know, so there was a lot of young guys in those early years. When now we look at the <laughs> at the dealer's room, and we're, 
you know, everybody's in their 50s, 60s, 70s, you know. So uh, we've all turned into these elderly, demented creatures. That, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is, you know. But another thing, uh, these magazines also showed a lot of dwarves, uh, midgets, uh, hunchbacks. Uh, uh, I actually knew a collector, I won't mention his name, uh, but I actually knew a collector who was barely five feet tall, he had a hunchback, and he enjoyed acting like a villain out of terror tales. <laughs> you know, he took pride in this. And I can remember him, like, uh, sending me uh, uh, some duplicate terror tales and horror stories, and he enclosed a gigantic poster, handwritten in red, saying, these are better than U.S. savings bonds, you know, because they're just going to go up in value. And he said he had his magazines in a bank vault. That's where he kept them, you know, so that nothing would happen to them. When was this? This was in the early 70s. Wow. Yeah. Uh, another guy I knew, uh, speaking of moment, want your eyes, uh, this guy also enjoyed acting uh, like a villain out of these magazines. He was always leering at girls, making faces at them. And we made a bet that he could not go up to a girl and pick her up by saying, the mole men want your eyes. You know? <laughs> I didn't believe he could do it, you know? Sure enough, I followed him up to the hotel uh, registration desk. There's a young girl who was there. She had no connection with PopCon, and he put on the most offensive leer that I've ever seen on anybody's face, and he stood there and said to this girl, baby, the moment want your eyes. And she smiled back at him, blushed red. I guess she thought she was, he was saying, you know, my eyes are pretty or something, <laughs> because he picked her up, she got off at 5 o'clock, and I actually saw them, two of them, going out the door. <laughs> so that's the way it was in the early PulpCon days, you know? <laughs> A lot of weird things were going on, I, and I could go on and on about some of these, some of these things. I've told Ed some of them, and I, I don't dare repeat some of the things I've told Ed. I'm blushing just thinking about them. <laughs> But, but get, getting back to your experiences now, how, how did the, the old school fans, because remember, we're dealing with a different demographic now. Uh, very few of us in this room, I dare say, if any, were actually old enough uh, to have bought pulps on the newsstands. And 40 years ago, when we still had a lot of those first generation pulp fans, how many of them thought that the magazines, the Weird Menace magazines, were cool then, and how many of them thought that they were garbage? And, you know, what, what was the spectrum of opinion? Yeah. Most of the old-time collectors, the guys that actually bought the magazines off the newsstands, thought they were trash. You know, like uh, my old friend Harry Noble actually bought the magazines off the newsstands in the 30s, and he, he, he said they were unreadable crap, as he used to put it. He liked looking at the covers, because the covers were so outrageous, you know, so every couple years he'd look through my set. And at that point in the 70s, I had a complete set of the Weird Menace. I had all the horrors, all the terrors, all the dime mysteries, had all the red circles. You know, I had the thrill and mystery thing. This almost got me beat up in an elevator a couple years ago. <laughs> Two drunks were in the elevator and, and took offense at this, you know, that sort of tickled me, you know, that all these years later people were still upset about the Weird Menace magazine. I survived that somehow, though. Uh, but. It, 
most of the old-time collectors did not like the, the weird menace. Uh, it was mainly young guys like, like myself at the time, and Weinberg, and, and, and uh, Sheldon Jeffrey. You know, we liked the weird menace, you know. Uh, eventually, though, I burned out on the whole thing. You know, I, I, I read a lot of them, and it, it got to be kind of old, and I, I sold off the entire set, so I don't have a single one of them. However, I do pick up the Gerasol reprints. So if any of you want to read what I'm talking about and what we're all talking about here, at uh, Phil, Phil Nelson's Nelson. table, him and his daughter have these things for 35 bucks, and you should really try at least one of them. Uh, you, I think you'll get a kick out of reading them. Now, 35 uh, bucks may seem like a lot of money for a magazine, but a, a fine condition copy of, of that magazine, just to give you a relative scale here, what, an idea what these are, that would be uh, two to three hundred dollars yeah. for a magazine like that. So, so the fact that uh, they're th and they're principally that expensive, by the way, because they're legitimately licensed as opposed to knockoffs. I would also add that John Gunnison, who, whose table is right across the aisle from Phil Nelson's of Adventure House, he also publishes reprints and he has some weird menace titles also that he's reprinted, although not the popular publications. Those are licensed to Girasol. But between John and Phil Nelson, uh, you can get these magazines, which if they were in sharp condition, and if you could find them, because they're increasingly, they're becoming scarce, uh, they would cost you hundreds of dollars, and you can get them for a fraction of that. Garen, we'll get some final thoughts from you before we wrap it up. Sure, just a, a couple of quick things. A lot of the uh, early Weird Menace authors, you mentioned Hugh Cave, and uh, the early dime mystery making the, the transition to the Weird Menace, when he had that archetypal story, the, the Corpse Master. And a lot of these guys wrote under pseudonym uh, for all kinds of marketing reasons and all that sort of stuff. So a lot of the Weird Menace authors did use pseudonyms. Bob Weinberg told me one time that he, he stopped me. I don't know where we were. It was about 15 years ago, and I've known Bob for 30, 40, I don't know how many years. And he said, Garen, he, we're talking Weird Menace in the hallway. He says, haven't you figured this out yet? And I, I said, what, Bob? You know, and he said, it's all about real estate and estate planning. They're doing these, this crazy stuff in these weird menace stories because somebody's trying to protect an estate or steal an estate or something like that. And I stopped to think about it, and, and he was right on. He, he had nailed the formula down uh, very, very uh, precisely. Uh, Steve Hafner did a book a few years ago. I was uh, blessed to be part of that book. Uh, I got to write an introduction for it on the early uh, terror tales of Henry Kuttner a very instrumental, uh, a man who helped so many other uh, pulp writers. I died at an early age, a few months before I was born in 58. And I tell you what, some of Henry's stuff for thrilling mystery and stuff rivaled some of the Red Circle stuff. I love Henry Kuttner, but oh my God, he got in the dirt and some of that stuff. I won't even tell you what some of the stuff that happened. It, it was bad, it was bad. Um, in the late 30s, and I've never, Robert Jones talks about this in a Shutter Pulse, and I'll finish up here, Ed. Um, I've wrestled with this a little bit. Uh, there was a lot of concern about uh, some of the content. Just like in the 50s, there would be concern about horror comic books. Just like in the th early 30s, there was concern about movie content, right? Well, the Weird Menace uh, stories got some, uh, apparently some uh, uh, New York PTA groups upset, and that's as, as Walker talked about. I've heard this story. I don't know exactly all the details of it, but that led to the de defective detective story. 
and those are wonderful. Of course, they were, all the detectors were defective. Sherlock Holmes had his, his problems. Uh, Miss Marple, every one of them had some major defect. But these started to become pretty interesting in the late 30s. They were very short-lived. There was even a specialized magazine called Strange Detective Mysteries, where you had the amnesiac who would be ready to solve the crime at the end of the classical mystery, and he'd forget the solution. <laughs> you, you'd have the hemophiliac, who every time he got a scratch would be bleeding to death while the criminal got away. Um, there, was, there was some very politically uh, incorrect, um, physically challenged people, crab people, all kinds of detectives that were blind. Um, that was an offshoot or a temporary, as the story goes from Robert Jones, of the Weird Menace story, and that's enough for me, Ed. Yeah, I, I, we can sum it up by saying that, that the Weird Menace story was nothing if not outré. So uh, they went right up to the line of tastelessness, and they kind of hovered there. And uh, some of them, like the Red Circle Pulse specifically, went, went over it. But um, God, I could go on. I think we could all go on for an hour on this. But uh, if you have additional questions, we can we can you know catch up with any of us in the dealers' room tomorrow. We'd be happy to answer them. And again, uh, we don't usually plug the products of specific dealers, but in this case, uh, you can save an awful lot of money by buying the Girasol reprints and and the weird meta stuff that John has from other companies. And uh, I have seen in the dealers' room today no less than five copies of the Shutter Pulps for sale, and that is a, a marvelous book on the topic. So that'll, that'll give you a little more of a basis to build on what we've told you here tonight. So with that, we will say goodbye momentarily. Uh, Walker is taking his leave. Garen and I will be back here for the panel on Astounding, which will also kind of uh, tighten up a little bit and uh, give you as much information as we can in a short period of time. So thanks again. We'll see you. We'll take just a couple minutes. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.